Well, I have to confess that in the writing of this sermon, I felt very beat up. In fact, um, two weeks ago, I called Jessica and said, can I get out of this? I don't want to do this sermon, but I wasn't released from it. And um, I finished it. I wrestled it through. And, but even this morning, I was tempted to pull the fire alarm just before chapel, <laughs> just, to have it, just to have it over with. The first problem is that this text is theologically difficult because Hagar's story does not fit neatly into our themes of salvation, repentance, deliverance, or liberation. But then maybe your life doesn't fit easily into those themes either, the tidy answers, the way things are supposed to wrap up. And maybe you are the reason we need to recount this story today. So I I had struggles theologically and then what I had to do was just abide in the story. And listening to this story of Hagar opened a deep ache in me for the untold numbers of people, refugee women, victims of war, uh, children of violence, and the people in peril that we hear about every day and that we have grown largely numb to, at least I had. And I felt like I was hearing Hagar's story everywhere, at church, at home, on the news, and it just broke my heart. For many, like Hagar, there is no tidy resolution to their dilemma of life, only the living of it. And that raised for me all my interior questions for which there are no answers. In this process, though, I've come to realize that Hagar stands as a largely forgotten voice in the great cloud of witnesses. She encountered the very real presence of God in actual form, in a time and a a way that was extraordinary. She is the first person in scripture to give God a personal name based on her experience of him. And God accepted that name. And she displays uh, striking humility and obedience in the face of great odds. The Apostle Paul references uh, Hagar's story in Galatians 4 as an allegory of being born of the slave woman and a caution um, in contrast to being born of Sarah, who was born of freedom and of promise. And indeed, Hagar's son was born of the will of man, not of grace. And we are rightly cautioned to uh, choose to be born of the spirit and of freedom. But is Hagar's story only useful to us as a cautionary tale, or only useful to us as an allegory? An allegory hollows out the real person. What's lost is their character and identity, their real experience. And so as an allegory, Hagar's personal and poignant story is silenced, um, as is any inclination of the reader to be touched by it. Personally, after sitting with Hagar's story, I wish that she had been named in the great list of um, faith that we see in the New Testament, because I see her now as a woman of great faith. So I've decided that we'll recount the story and we'll let God do with it what he wants and see what comes of this. To my thinking, Hagar's story begins with a man's problem with his wife. Don't all stories and start somewhere (laughs) like that. The problem with his wife was she was so uncommonly beautiful and he could see other men leering at her and Abraham felt the knife in his back. Someone was going to kill him to get Sarah. And interestingly, um, 
his concern wasn't so much for her, but for himself. Uh, he seemed willing to put Hagar at great risk, but uh, he was very much afraid for himself. And this concern began to take up space in his mind. In my imagination, I can just see uh, Abram harumphing through the market, catching sight of laughing groups of plain women with broad backsides and, and um, cracked feet spilling out over their sandals. And I can hear him mutter, lucky husbands. <laughs> he, he thinks and he schemes and finally he comes to it. He concocts a lie. He's going to say that Sarah is his sister and that will keep him safe. And that lie took on a life of its own and spun itself out through palaces and bedrooms until it ended up in the desert with a pregnant woman whose life was entirely at peril. It turns out that Abraham was right. Sarah is noticed and identified as Abraham's sister and taken into Pharaoh's harem. In return, Abraham is generously gifted including a slave girl named Hagar. Now, just to show her importance, in Genesis 15, Hagar is named fifth behind sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male slaves, then it names the female slaves, followed by lesser female donkeys and a camel. Well, when it all goes sideways, and Abraham loads his camel up with the folded tents and household goods, and sails out of Egypt back into the wilderness, the slave girl can only look back at the receding lights of Egypt. Ahead is the desert, the terrifying, feared unknown. Now, Hagar has likely always been a slave, never been free, but now a stranger's deception has robbed her of everything that could be familiar to her. She is a refugee carried away on the wave of events greater than her life, and the trauma is the dominant forming directive of her life. From the moment of being given to that tall, beautiful woman, there is tension between them. Girl, get me water. Girl, don't do that. Stop that. Do this. How could Hagar know that the woman she served, who looked so beautiful, was actually broken and deeply wounded? Her womb was closed, and her husband was insecure and deceitful. And these two circumstances had put Sarah into dangerous situations that, according to scripture, are never resolved. The promises that God makes to her husband seems to obsess him, but doesn't bring her a better situation. Over and over, Abraham comes home to Sarah to tell her of God's words of promise, that they're going to have a family and their family is going to bless all nations. But month after month, the pain of barrenness tightens its grip around Sarah's heart. In this patriarchal context, where the begetting of sons is everything, Hagar's life is scarred by one woman's broken exploitation. And we all know that hurt people hurt people, to coin a phrase that's been coined. Race, economic, social position have conspired to create a dynamic imbalance of power, putting one at the mercy of the other and both in the shadow of a dominant man who does not seem to be caring for either of them. There comes a day when general abuse becomes darkly sexual. Sarah decides that Abram is going to impregnate Hagar and give them their longed-for heir. Without argument, Abraham acquiesces. Together, they will create their own blessing and fulfill the promises of God over their lives. 
There's no report in scripture of this being discussed with Hagar. I wonder if the first she knew of it was when Abraham ducked into the flap, through the flap of her tent and she had no options. Some of the reflections I've had while reading this story, um, one of them happens right here. And I'll just put it out there just as a thought. It's interesting to me that while Abraham is reveling in the promises of God that his family will bless all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth within his household are being abused. And that stands to me as a, as a caution. I sometimes wonder if our, if our value of those, the needs of those outside of us, outside of our realm, that we're going to go save and, and heal and take care of. What's happening, first of all, to the people right inside our household, inside our city? Is there engagement with them there? Just a thought. Well, this pregnancy happens, and the pregnancy shifts the dynamic power in the house. And perhaps for the first time, Hagar feels she has voice. And like many people who get a sense of voice, she handles it badly. And she becomes snarky with Sarah. And this isn't going well at all. Um, the whole household gets very tense. And you just can hear Sarah. I love this. It was so beautifully read. She says to her husband, look what you've done to me. This is all your fault. <laughs> just love it. This is husband and wife talk. And Abraham's like, she's your girl. She's your slave girl, Sarah. Do whatever you want with her. Well, what Sarah wanted to do was to intensify the humiliation, to take away from her the dignity of womanhood that the child in her womb had given her. And so when the opportunity comes, Hagar runs. I can just see the situation. They've just passed the city of Shur. There, there's a road still out there that's visible. She's taken note of the last place they stopped where there were springs. So when there's a moment, Hagar, young and, and full of herself, puts on every bracelet that she has, puts a colored um, scarf over her head and slips out and takes off and makes it, interestingly, to the first rest stop where she is taking a break. I wonder if there the enormity of her situation starts to overcome her. How will she get to the next well? How will she travel? She is all alone. The desolation must have been incredible. How surprising then in that isolation to see a figure materializing out of the haze and approaching her at the well and more astoundingly knowing her. Hagar, slave girl, of, slave girl of Sarah, the man says, where are you coming from and where are you going? Notice the intimacy. And Sarah responds right away, I'm running away from my mistress. I want you to notice how significant this is. This is the first time in scripture that the name, the angel of the Lord, is used for a divine appearance. And it comes to a slave woman. It is one of the several firsts in Hagar's story. The, the angel of the Lord says, your son will be named Ishmael, which means God hears, heard, God hears, for I have heard your misery. This is the first time in scripture that God names a person before they're born, which is another first for her. And then, then he engages her in co this conversation about her descendants and the prophecies regarding her son. Now, Hagar is stunned by this. She is clearly rec uh, recognizes the person who's visiting as a divine encounter. And she names him El Roy, the God who sees me, saying, I have seen the God who sees me. 
I'd like to point out that this is a remarkably personal and daring response to God, considering she is a woman slave. It's the first time in scripture someone takes a personal encounter with God and then names God because of it. The scriptures are eventually full of that. God is my rock, God is my strong tower. But this is the first time that happens. So she takes a remarkably daring response to God. She is both insightful and creative in this moment. And God responds to her without rebuke. He receives what she gives him. There's so much to ponder in this encounter. The fact that God is showing himself as the God who engages in the face of human suffering, humiliating poverty, and the results of human conflict. The the idea that the problems of the least powerful person in the household is noticed by God. And amazingly, God will seek her out in the wilderness to comfort her. And this thought that God shows no respect for human hierarchies and status, even while he is calling out a people of himself. I love that. While he's working to call out Abraham and Sarah and their descendants, that is not a hierarchy for him. He goes and he, he gets Sarah. If this was the end of the story, I could so preach it. I could find theology for it. I could love to give this as the end of the story. But it's not. Hagar encounters God, and the encounter hardly leads to liberation or to a change in her situation. In fact, the order that that God gives her is, go back and submit to your mistress. This is a survival strategy requiring severe determination. But I'd like to make point notice that Hagar returns without an argument. This is one of the few times in the whole Genesis account where God is given submissive obedience without manipulation, argument, doubt, or conniving. And it comes from a slave woman. And don't think for one minute that this was easy. Think about your worst relationship, someone you worked with, or a relationship that you had. And how you, if you escaped from it, how it would be, feel if God said to you, what you're going to do is go back into that relationship and submit to it. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a pattern to follow. I'm all about helping women escape abusive situations. And I'm not saying that this is a pattern of God's will to send a person back to an abusive relationship. But I do want to point this out, that an encounter with the living God does not always immediately relieve our environment or situation the way we would like it to. And there's this ridiculous idea that's passed around between Christians that if we learn our lessons fast, we will get out of trouble. I've heard people say that. I try to learn my lessons fast, so my problems end. God forbid. Some of the most beautiful, faithful people I know live their life in the wilderness with problem after problem, with the presence of God, but not the immediate relief of the environment. We can't always know what God is up to. And there was mercy in this instruction, even though it did not offer her a detour out of her misery. Clearly, one of God's purposes in this was to preserve her pregnancy. And that required that she be hidden in the womb of this nomadic caravan. God's presence made it possible for her not to be paralyzed by fear or discouragement and set her back on a road that would provide safety for her and her son. But it was not a simple redemption. Hagar's story interrupts the dominant narrative again 
in chapter 21. She's given birth, her child has become the accepted uh, heir of Abraham, and he's even become fond, fond of the boy. When the boy is 13, God has another visitation to Abraham to reconfirm his covenant, to promise heirs, to tell him his, his children will bless um, the nations. And um, in that, it's interesting, because Abraham actually offers God Ishmael as, as the heir. And God says, no, I will bless Ishmael, but there will be an heir through Sarah. And by God's grace, their long-sought son, Isaac, is born. Isaac's birth, though, sets up another cycle of pain for Hagar, as Ishmael is seen to be a greater and greater threat. And in the end, again, Sarai, who turns out isn't a great kind person, um, she demands that Abraham drive Ishmael and Hagar out of the compound. Abraham resists a little bit and then gives in. And early in the morning, a cowed but sad Abraham packs up some water and some food and gives it to Hagar and Ishmael and sends them out to find their fortunes. Doesn't it comfort you to see how flawed the biblical characters are? This is, these are the people God is working with. This time, Hagar goes out into the wilderness, humbled, less confident, less sure of her environment. And she and her son wander around in circles, struggle to find resources, and finally squeeze the last drop of water out of the skin that Abraham gave her. Ishmael becomes thinner and thinner and begins to show the dangerous signs of dehydration. There's nothing to do but watch their lives ebb away. The mother's heart is breaking. Years later, the psalmist would describe the human experience of one like Hagar. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Psalm 69.3. Into this context, the angel of the Lord comes again to Hagar. The God who hears and sees her finds her near death and hopeless, and he again names her. Hagar, what is the matter? God has heard the cries of your boy. He has heard what she has been listening to and had compassion. Elroy again shows his compassion to Ishmael. Take the boy by the hand and lift him up. I will make him into a great nation. And then Elroy shows her a well nearby, and her and the boy drink deeply. And the scripture says, God was with the boy as he grew up. This then is not a one-time encounter, but it is a provision. Even so, Hagar has to learn how to live in the wilderness. Her unwanted, unwarranted exile was permanent. I see Hagar as an extraordinary woman of, in the history of faith. Her suffering is profound, but her encounters with the divine are groundbreaking. She exhibits obedience and faith in a miserably unfair situation, which never really changes. So what will we do with her story? First of all, who are the Hagars in your world? Have you become numb to the daily stories of the unnumbered refugees who, like Hagar, are caught in a web of miserable or life-threatening experiences, maybe struggling to stay alive, maybe fighting for their children. Has that, all those stories become numb to you? How do you engage with the people around you whose lives seem unimportant?
Henry Nouwen in The Return of the Prodigal said that God is the God who relates to us not on the basis of his power over us, but of his compassion for us. Abraham related to Hagar on the basis of his power over her. Sarai related to Hagar on the basis of her power over her. But God related to Hagar on the basis of his compassion for her. God never tires of loving and intervening, even in situations of poverty, exile, and human conflict. Will we allow our compassion to be stirred so that we can respond to the Hagars in our world out of compassion? Leviticus 19 says, when an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you are also an alien. That's the, the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the alien as yourself. Love the marginal as yourself. Love the broken as yourself. What can Hagar's story say to our own wilderness wanderings? Maybe someone who's here today needs to hear that God can be present with us and we can be responding in obedience and still find life very hard. Being in the wilderness is not a sign of God's absence. God's presence, though not necessarily bringing ready-made answers, can and does bring hope and courage, making it possible for us not to be paralyzed by fear and disappointment. On the other hand, here's another thought. Has the length of the wilderness journey conditioned us to expect nothing from God? I fear that we sometimes resign ourselves to living thirsty. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he had a well of living water and the one who drank from it would never run dry. Do we expect and watch for encounters with God when we're walking through a long wilderness? And I know there are people here who are in a wilderness situation. It can be external, it can be internal. Maybe we feel that our own complications of life have relegated us to a life that doesn't deserve the living water. We're living what we deserve to get. Maybe someone here needs to hear that God is the God who sees and comes to aid of the invisible one, the one who's broken, the suffering one, no matter what the source of their suffering. When I was writing this and thinking it through, I had this old revivalist song going through my head. Maybe you'll hear Jimmy Swaggart's voice in these words. It's beginning to rain rain, rain, hear the voice of the Father, saying, whosoever will, come drink of the water. I promise to pour my spirit out on your sons and your daughters. If you're thirsty and dry, look up to the sky. It's beginning to rain. Friends, sometimes I am so thirsty. Sometimes we just have learned to live thirsty, and that's not what God intends for us, even when we're in the wilderness. The prophet speaks for God in Isaiah 41, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. 
I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Are you thirsty? I think of that old prayer, do it again, Lord. For us, do it again.